Our call to worship this morning is some words from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our first hymn this morning is number 29 in the Common Ground book. It will also appear on the screen. And if you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing together, When I Receive the Peace of Christ, My Loneliness Shall End. going to come to God now in a prayer of approach 
And at the end of that, we are invited to join together in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus taught his followers, in whatever language and whatever version is most natural, and the version that is used by a lot of us here will also appear on the screen. So let's pray together. God of peace, we come to you from the routine of our daily lives, from the self-inflicted tyranny of activity or the unchosen oppression of inactivity. We come to you with minds buzzing with thoughts and questions. We come with our senses stimulated almost to bursting point or dulled by disillusionment. We come seeking a little peace, a little space, a little rest, a little refreshment. We come to offer our praise and to seek your blessing. We come to confess our sins and to find ourselves forgiven. We come as people who long to find fulfilment, purpose and hope. We come as people who dare to dream of a world where peace is real, love is warm, hope is realised. We come as people who glimpse in Jesus something attractive, enticing us to follow him, and in so doing, to discover who we really are. God of peace, we offer our praise and ask you to hear our prayers as we join together in the words Jesus taught, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth and in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Small people might want to come a bit closer so you can have a look at what I'm going to show you. And there will be some things that appear on the screen as well, but you're going to show you a picture in a minute, so um, you might want to come closer so you can, you can actually see the picture. I wonder if anybody can read what it says on the front of that book. Oh, yeah, would you like to have a go? Don't call me special. That's a funny name for a book, isn't it? Yeah, we're not going to read the whole book. We're just going to look at a, the part of the beginning of it. So here's a picture, and I'm just going to put a photograph of the book on the screen so the grown-ups can see what we're doing, because they feel awfully left out otherwise. So it says in this book, some children find it really difficult to join in with games in the playground. How can you tell which ones? So I want you to have a look at that picture and see if you can find a child that you think might find it difficult to join in the games in the playground at school. Anybody see a child that you think might find it difficult? Fergus. The girl in the wheelchair. Yep, there's a girl. Can the grown up see a girl in the wheelchair in that picture? She's quite well hidden. She's on the kind of a ramp bit on the left hand side. Yep, any other children you think might find it difficult to, to join in the playground? Yep. Which one do you think? The ginger-haired boy on the left-hand side of the right-hand page, if that makes sense. So where the fold in the book is, the first boy you can see who's looking into the other page. got his arms folded, so yeah, that kind of looks like you might find it a bit tricky, yeah. All kinds of reasons why people might find it difficult to join in games in the playground. Not just because they're in a wheelchair. In fact, if we turned over the page, the grown-ups haven't got this because they haven't photographed it, but can you see what the girl in the wheelchair is doing? Yeah, she's playing tennis. But actually, do you know what? You've got it right. You've got this book at home. You've got it absolutely right. The boy with the ginger hair, with his arms folded, is the one who finds it difficult because he can't run very fast. And he gets teased about that. And this book helps us to go on and think about people who might have disabilities and how we should treat everybody the same. But we're going to have a look at some more pictures on the screen. Because there's some things we call different disabilities, we might not know what they are. Can you guess what, is, what might be different about the children in these pictures? And the, and the lady for that matter, the grown up woman. Yes. That's right, they are speaking in sign language. Does anybody speak British Sign Language that can translate any of that? If I remember rightly, that's a sign for signing. Is that the sign? I think that's the sign for signing. So I think the, the boy at the top is telling us he's signing. Um, it looks like the girl and the woman are doing some finger spelling. Does anybody do British Sign Language here or American Sign Language or Makaton or any of these things? No? But for some people, that's a really good way to talk. But we might feel left out, mightn't we, if everybody around us was talking that way because we wouldn't be able to join in. But they look the same, don't they? They don't look any different from us. What about these two? Anybody see anything about these two children that they might recognise or might not recognise? <coughs> Grown-ups are allowed to join in as well, if they wish. Sorry? Um, it's actually a cochlear implant, but yeah, he's a boy who was born unable to hear, and he has a cochlear implant, which enables him to hear with the help of a hearing aid. Anybody know what the girl is holding? 
Yeah. It's a, an insulin pump. So she has an insulin pump. Look, there's one over there, a real light insulin pump. Phew, I'm so glad you came there. Oh, sorry. Yours is not pink either. So completely ordinary people, but just a little bit different because their bodies are made just a little bit different. And I found this on the internet. Can you see it? You might have to stand up because you probably can't see through the table and maybe just move around a bit. But it says, not all disabilities are like this, and it shows a picture of a wheelchair, which is a disability side. Some disabilities look like this. Yeah, it makes you turn green and go like that. What it really means is you can't tell. Lots of disabilities, you can't tell them at all. They're, they're what are called hidden conditions. We're all made a bit differently. And one of the words that gets used to describe people sometimes is special. And, and this book is actually really a book from children. I think some disabled children with disabilities were involved in writing it. They said they don't want to be called special because they're not. They might be a bit different, but they're just children like everybody else. I also found this one, which is more for the grown-ups um, and sort of connects a little bit with where we're going later. Um, hidden disabilities, things inside us that can affect the way we feel. Um, I think they've stolen Kate Granger's Hello, My Name Is, although I would like to point out that Jeff Evans invented it long before Kate Granger did. He just didn't quite have the web presence. Um, but things like stress, grief, anxiety, depression, frustration and shame, you can't see them on the outside, but they might be going on for people inside. And I think the important thing for us to remember is, even if we're made a bit differently from somebody else, and even if we've got things going on inside that are difficult, that we don't feel able to talk about, that are hidden, and this is going to sound really twee, but I think it's also really true, is that God still loves us. And Jesus is there for us. And you can make that really like, oh, that's okay, fine, Jesus is with me, hooray. I don't mean that. I mean, actually, in that difficulty, in that time when you feel you're on the outside looking in, in that time when you're at school, perhaps, and you've got no friends. It's like Jesus is standing there and he's got no friends either. So he kind of gets what it's like for us. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about a little bit this week. And we're going to sing a song. Um, This is a song written by a Baptist man who's probably quite old by now. um, And it's called Jesus Had All Kinds of Friends.
Our scripture readings this morning are all from the Gospel of Luke, from chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, from chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and from chapter 24, verses 1 to 11. A Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and Jesus went to his house and sat down to eat. Now in that town was a woman who lived a sinful life. She heard that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, so she brought an alabaster jar full of perfume and stood behind Jesus by his feet, crying and wetting his feet with her tears. Then she dried his feet with her hair, kissed them and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee saw this, he said to himself, If this man really were a prophet, he would know this woman who's touching him and he would know what kind of sinful life she lives. Sometime later, Jesus travelled through towns and villages preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. The twelve disciples went with him and so did some women who had been healed of evil spirits and diseases. Mary who is called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been driven out. Joanna, whose husband Cusa was an officer in Herod's court. And Susanna, and many other women who used their own resources to help Jesus and his disciples. Very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb carrying the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the entrance to the tomb, so they went in. But they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They stood there, puzzled about this, when suddenly two men in bright, shining clothes stood by them. Full of fear, the women bowed down to the ground as the men said to them, Why are you looking among the dead for one who is alive? He's not here. He has been raised. Remember what he said to you while he was in Galilee? The Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, be crucified, and three days later rise to life. Then the women remembered his words, returned from the tomb, and told all these things to the eleven disciples and all the rest. The women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. They and the other women with them told these things to the apostles. But the apostles thought that what the women said was nonsense, and they did not believe them.
So this is the third and final sermon in our short series on Bible stories featuring women. Each of them stories that are familiar to us, to us and all of them in some measure at least quite shocking. What is different about today's is that what is shocking has got less to do with what the Bible says than the way that over the centuries the church has interpreted and distorted the scriptures, leaving us with a popular understanding of Mary of Magdala that has no textual basis whatsoever. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that Mary was a prostitute, and yet this story continues to be perpetuated. And it was this image of Mary as a prostitute that inspired the song that Katrina's just sung so beautifully for us. It's a song that actually has an important message, and I will come back to that briefly later on. But even so, this idea of Mary as a prostitute isn't there in Scripture. And nowhere are we told that Mary of Magdala was the sinful woman that Luke records anointing Jesus' feet at the home of Simon the Pharisee. It's a story that is actually quite shocking. It's a very sensual story. It's even borderline sexual as a story. And so this idea of a sinful woman leaches into a prostitute and then somehow because Mary was close to Jesus, people decide it was her. It's interesting, at least to me, that Luke puts this story fairly early in Jesus' ministry. The other three Gospels all have it as part of the Passion narrative. John identifies it specifically as taking place in the home of Martha of Bethany, and he has Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus. Matthew and Mark don't name the woman, but she is there in their Passion narrative. Two of the Gospels, it's the feet that are anointed, and two of the Gospels, it's Jesus' head. Well, whether it was an apparently pious and devoted Mary of Bethany, or whether it was an unnamed village prostitute whose actions are at the heart of the story, it's a very beautiful story, as well as really quite a shocking story. But it's got nothing to do with Mary Magdalene, at least not according to the Bible as I read it. So I could preach a whole sermon just on the defamation of character that has arisen from sloppy, misogynistic exegesis. Well, perhaps another time, because that's not where I'm going today. All four of the Gospels identify by name the women who stood close to the cross where Jesus was executed. And whilst there is some variation in the lists, Mary Magdalene is always the first name recorded. And all four resurrection accounts explicitly name Mary Magdalene as chief among the grieving women who came to the tomb on the Sabbath. It is she who is first to encounter the risen Jesus. She who is entrusted with the message to take back to the male disciples who think she's barking. And it's no doubt that from these references to Mary that she was close to Jesus. She was part of his inner circle of women and of men. It's probably reasonable to say that she did love him and equally reasonable to say that he loved her. Given these very minimal accounts, it's perhaps not so difficult to see how a patriarchal society came to question Mary's morality. 
how the very sensual act of anointing was viewed as sexual, how she came to be identified with Jezebel or Potiphar's wife, and how artists have chosen to portray her. I don't know if you watched anybody watch the images that were in the background of Katrina's singing, but often she's portrayed as Titian-haired or, or clad in red. Um, I find this one particularly striking, the kind of pole dancing on the cross, Mary. But it's easy to see how people like Scorsese came up with the idea in The Last Temptation of Christ of Jesus imagining himself being married to Mary. And some people thought that was terribly, terribly offensive. It was blasphemous. Well, if you believe that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and was without sin, then clearly he could have been tempted to marry Mary and and imagine a different life. So I don't quite get that. But, you know, this arises from the way that Mary is portrayed as a dodgy woman. And that is why in Jesus Christ Superstar, she actually appears as quite a potential seductress. She's kind of quite... um, her, her body language seems to suggest that potential. But it's not Mary's story. There's no mention of her anointing Jesus' feet. What we do have is a very short, oblique reference to her being delivered of seven demons. Well, frankly, that's not so exciting, is it? That's not a tantalising tale. You can't evoke images in your mind to titillate or tease yourself with or to tease others with. In fact, it's puzzling and it's troubling because we don't quite know what to do with it. For most of history, the church seems to have taken a pretty literal view of demon possession, which is a uniquely New Testament concept. I actually checked this week. There's no mentions of demons, demon possession in the, in the Old Testament in the same way as there is in the New Testament. It was recognized as something extremely rare and troubling, And so the church developed rituals and rites to exorcise demons from the people concerned. And whilst they were strange, and we might think them decidedly dodgy, the original motivation was essentially a pastoral one. They wanted to deliver these people, to liberate them from whatever was going on. With the emergence of modern medicine, and particularly since the last half of the 20th century, people have reread these gospel stories of exorcisms as referring to people with epilepsy or mental health issues or personality disorders, recognising that these conditions and those afflicted by them have been demonised through the years and seeking to address that. Readings of the scriptures that lead towards demonology, seeing demons everywhere, are usually misguided. You get an unhealthy preoccupation of driving demons out of people for whatever it might be that we dislike. Some people talk about the Jezebel spirit in women preachers that should be driven out of them. Well, hey, if I've got that one, that's fine. I'll live with it. The worldwide church has in the past and continues to ill-serve many people, causing terrible damage as a result, trying to exorcise from people just the way they are, even the way that God deliberately made them. I wasn't going to say this, but I am. The church in general has a horrendous uh, track record on its support of people who are gay, bisexual, and so on, by trying to drive out and pray for change of their their bodies to make them straight. 
God makes people how God makes people, and you can't drive out what God has made. So demonology readings are misguided, but they can also be quite cruel, and in fact, sometimes I would suggest wicked. But reading the stories through a mental health lens isn't entirely helpful either. And why would somebody who has depression or a personality disorder choose to identify themselves with somebody who's got multiple demons in them? In any case, even for those who faithfully fast and prayer and exercise faith, miraculous cures for mental health conditions are as rare as hen's teeth. And medical science is still trying to understand these conditions. We're still in the very early stages of understanding how the mind works. And a lot of people perceive this as a Cinderella area of medicine. I'm not qualified to comment on that, but I know some people see it that way. I'm not going to talk about the story from a demonology point of view, and I'm not going to talk about it from a mental health point of view, because apart from anything else, it's not my experience. So why on earth, then, did I choose this story alongside my bleeding woman and my adulterous woman? Mary of Magdala has seven demons, so we're told. We don't know what they were, how they manifested themselves, or anything about them. We're just left to imagine it. And I think maybe that is the place that allows us to think ourselves into the story. Whilst I was off work for a few weeks, I had a lot of time to think. Actually, I had too much time to think because I'm one of those people who reflects on everything far too much. At the time of my surgery, I was warned that the sudden change in hormone levels could affect my mood. Well, for the first few weeks, that was fine. You know, I was doing all right. It was great. And then it came. The morning when I woke up absolutely furious. My mother would have said I was fit to be tied. No reason, just a burning anger that just seemed to come from nowhere and take me over. And then when there was a Sunday morning that I woke up incredibly unhappy, deeply, deeply, oh, life wasn't worth living for no good reason. And it was a beautiful sunny day. It was a really beautiful sunny day. So I decided I'd go out for a walk, but I was walking along the Clyde Expressway with this metaphorical black cloud over my head. And the reality is, if I hadn't had two cats to come home for, I'd probably have kept walking. Thankfully, they passed. Starting back to work and having lots of things to occupy my mind, but hopefully not so much that they become an escape from reality, has been a good thing. These temporary demons been dealt with. But it did get me thinking about the demons that I and others might be affected by. I don't mean malign supernatural spirits that seek to destroy us. I mean the internal thoughts, the drivers or attitudes that perhaps creep up on us, sometimes in the night, very often in the night in my case. They debilitate us, they sap our energy, they undermine our self-esteem or our self-confidence. So I started making a list, and then I asked a few ministers who I feel I'm able to trust, and then a few friends, and the list grew very quickly, and it seemed that I was on to something. 
whether it's one demon or seven or 77, people could identify very easily the forces inside or the inclinations inside. But what I also found for myself and other people seem to find it in in the naming is that by naming them, by speaking them out loud, we got a bit of control over them. And one of the things that I have done with one of my own demons, in inverted commas, is to personify it because that allows me to make it ridiculous and control it. Can I tell you about the evil what-if fairy? The evil what-if fairy entered my life five and a half years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer. And he would sit on my shoulder and he would whisper into my ear, what if the treatment doesn't work? What if the cancer's already spread? What if you take this drug or you don't take that drug? What if you live to be this old? What if you only live to be that old? And so on. He's largely nocturnal, is the evil what-if fairy, and so he's got a pale face. He has got sunken, cold, grey, steel-grey eyes and a miserable expression. He has a shaggy beard and unkempt hair. He wears a tatty brown tunic and luminous pink leggings because that's the breast cancer colour and I hate that pink colour, so he has the pink leggings. He's got sharp, pointy elbows and his voice is a hoarse, rasping whisper. By giving him a name, by giving him a description, I could get the upper hand. Once very, very active, he's now in a cage and he's underfed because when I hear his voice, I recognise it and I choose not to respond to it. So he's under control. He hasn't gone away completely. He has his moments when he comes and whispers into my mind, ah, but what if? What's this ache and pain? What about that? But mostly, mostly I can get on with my life. So here are some of the other demons I and others recognised and named. You'll be relieved to know I'm not going to describe them for you because nobody told me how they described their demons. You might recognise some of them yourself. Imposter syndrome. That fear of being found out as a fraud. Because that's what we really are, isn't it? We we seem to be outwardly competent and to know what we're talking about, but actually, we know we're not. We're just waiting for the day when somebody finds us out. This demon tends to afflict the most highly gifted and skilled people because they're so aware of their own fallibility and actually assume quite wrongly that everybody else is much more clever and much more confident. And then you start talking to others and you realise you've all got it. And she has an an evil twin called perfectionism. The drive that makes the best the enemy of the good. That satisfaction with what had been achieved becomes impossible, driving the host to work harder and longer in a forlorn quest for the perfect sermon, the perfect treatment plan, the perfect lesson, the perfect meal, whatever it might be. Or there's that bad fairy that whispers, it's all my fault. It's one that often comes to children whose parents separate. It's my fault my parents divorced. And it's one that can carry on into adulthood. It's my fault the project failed. It's my fault you don't like me. And then there's the if-only imp. If only I hadn't said that. 
if only I had done the other. These are demons who make their host feel really bad about themselves and bad about everything. Or that sly, whispering sprite that says, oh, but they're only saying that. Sack that compliment. Those people who say it was a good sermon, they don't mean it was a good sermon. They don't mean you're good at your job. They don't like you, really. It's all a pretend, just, you know, they're being nice. It's all superficial, but actually, you're rubbish. And they're just too polite to tell you. Or that pernicious pixie who says, well, you could have done better, you know. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't concentrate well enough. You didn't pay enough attention to the detail. And I suspect I could go on all day. And I suspect if I asked you, you could tell me ones that I and my friends who have shared haven't thought of. But it does seem to me that these demons, the vast majority of whom are often nocturnal, fall into two groups. There are those that are based on fear. The fear of isolation or loneliness. The fear of illness or death. The fear of failure. Fear of not having enough money, not having enough whatever it is. A kind of fear of the unknown which can become very oppressive. And then there are those that are based on words spoken that penetrate our souls and let confidence bleed out. You're not good enough. It's your fault. If only you were more like, my, my little sister used to get, if only you were more like your big sister. Whatever it is. Words that stick in our hearts and actually can become like demons. Maybe some of what I've said resonates and maybe it doesn't. But I would encourage you to take some time to think, who are your demons? What are their names? Because that is the first step in overcoming them. But let's go back to Mary Magdalene. And let's go back to the way she's portrayed in what I think is a really beautiful song, I Don't Know How to Love Him. Because I think she speaks for most, if not all of us. Here is a woman who has been demonized throughout Christian history. A woman who perhaps had mental health issues, though we don't know. But perhaps, like many of us, had demons in inverted commas that caused fear and self-loathing. Here is a woman who was desperate to be accepted, yearning to be loved. And in Jesus, she glimpses that possibility. And then she sings these words, which I'm not going to sing because I can't sing as well as Katrina. Yet, if he said he loved me, I'd be lost. I'd be frightened. I couldn't cope, just couldn't cope. I'd turn my back. I'd walk away. I wouldn't want to know. He scares me so. I love him so. Now, some will hear the song referring to sexual love or physical attraction, but I want to suggest it can be heard more generally because surely every single one of us wants to be accepted, wants to be loved. And for each one of us, that can be a terrifying possibility. Those inner demons gather on our shoulders and in chorus they say, no, not you, not you, you're a fraud, you're not good enough, you don't try hard enough, you don't look good enough, whatever it is, you don't deserve to be loved. 
To be loved and accepted by Christ is a terrifying thought. What if he really knew about me? What if he knew about my past? The things I'm never going to tell you. What if he could look into my heart and see the skeletons of my regrets? What if he discovers that there really are multiple demons, in inverted commas, resident in my psyche? But the thing is, he does know our past, and he can see into our hearts, and he's fully aware of those demons, and he still reaches out to accept us. Mary most probably didn't anoint Jesus' feet, but somebody not so very different from her did, and Jesus delighted in it. Mary came to know herself loved by Jesus, so much so that she stood near the cross. And later she wept in the garden when she found the tomb empty. Here was a man who had accepted her and loved her, and she loved him, and he was gone. And in that utter abandonment, the bitter grief, the broken dreams, the Gospel of John tells us he spoke her name, Mary. And in our sorrow, our pain, our own sense that we are unclean or sinful or possessed of demons, he comes to us and calls our name. Will we, like her, discover acceptance and love from him? The acceptance and love we yearn for? We're going to take a few moments of quiet reflection and there will be some music and then that will lead on into the next hymn. And I want to invite you, if it's helpful for you, in that silence, in that quiet, to name and shame demons of your own or to draw near to Jesus and discover that you are accepted. Every one of us, just as we are, is accepted and loved. And after that music and that song, the service will continue with no further announcement.
Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you with some of the burden of the world's woes. So we have many millions to pray for. Today, thousands of women are fearful of what an insect sting might do to the child in their womb. Thousands of families feel driven from their homeland by poverty and inability to make a living. Thousands more flee from warfare or the threat of violence and take extreme risks in search of a meaningful life. Thousands of families are abandoned for months or years by husbands lured away by the chance of lucrative work in harsh conditions, sometimes in distant lands. Thousands in Japan and Ecuador are mourning for earthquake victims. Lord, we find it hard to imagine what we might do in such circumstances and tend to expect politicians to find answers which often become grants of money from inadequate resources while the politicians move on to the next challenging situation ignored for too long. Loving Father, we thank you for those organizations and individuals who become personally involved in helping families or communities in need. Thank you for the power of the media to publicize international situations and to focus on typical individuals to stir our, emo our emotions and evoke a response from us. Thank you for those courageous ones who ignore a personal risk and limited resources and see the needy as human beings like themselves, each with their own personality, their own imperfections and sins, only needing some help to be able to develop their human potential. Lord, may we not withhold our help, whether that is personal or financial, practical or prayerful. We pray also for those with problems of personality that in Jesus' time might have been called demons, those who cannot control their emotions, who harbor prejudices and jealousies, those with unrealistic expectations, or the inability to empathize with neighbors or colleagues or family members those who are totally self-centered or with no understanding of Christian values and especially the quality of love personified in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Lord, to save us from hypocrisy, we beg you by the power of your Holy Spirit 
to purge our own emotions and attitudes so that we may cooperate in the building of your kingdom of justice, peace and love as doers of your word, not hearers only. Builders, not onlookers, nor stone throwers. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.